0: A group of Pittsburgh entrepreneurs formed the Toxaway Company in 1895, and they made plans to dam the Toxaway River to create the largest man-made lake in the Appalachian Mountains. Construction of the 60-foot-tall and 500-foot-wide dam was completed in July of 1903, and the lake was named, yep, you guessed it, Lake Toxaway. It was three miles long and one mile wide with 14 miles of shoreline. Residents and guests of Lake Toxaway would enjoy the serene beauty of the lake and the mountains until the tremendous flood and a convergence of hurricanes in August of 1916 would change the history of Lake Toxaway. The dam broke, sending 5.3 billion gallons of water downstream, emptying the lake where it would sit empty for the next 45 years. This is a special episode because it's a story of a remarkable place and a fascinating history told to the eyes of third-generation resident John Nichols III, whose grandfather helped restore Lake Toxaway to its former glory in the early 1960s. We talk about John's earliest recollections of growing up in Lake Toxaway, living in what is now known as the Greystone Inn, warm summer days and cool nights, lightning bugs, the sounds of nature, and a simpler way of life. There is an atmosphere surrounding Lake Toxaway that, in John's words, is nearly indescribable. We also talk about the surrounding communities of Brevard and Cashers, Georgia State Park, and Panthertown Valley, and how, in many ways, the things that drew people to the area in the 1900s, like fishing, hunting, horseback riding, hiking, and waterfall touring, are the same things that attract people to the area today. It's so rare to meet someone who has a direct and deep connection to an area dating back three generations. And when you do, especially in these beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains, you make time to visit and listen. And that's what I did. I really hope you enjoy this episode. You're listening to Exploration Local. A podcast designed to explore and celebrate the people and places that make the Blue Ridge and Southern Appalachian Mountains special and unique. My name is Mike Andrus, the host of Exploration Local. Join us on our journey to explore these mountains and discover how they fuel the spirit of adventure. We encourage you to wander far, but explore local. Let's go. Originally Toxway
1: was a nine thousand acre resort that has was split up between here and a place called Burlingame. We're 13 or 14 miles from Cashiers and about, about 16, 17 miles from Brevard, almost dead right in the center. To the north of us is Pisgah National Forest and Panther Town Valley into State Park. To the south of us is Gorgeous State Park, which is about a 20,000 acre state park that's relatively uh, new state park. So we're just, you know, kind of hidden in the woods, surrounded by national parks
0: up here. It's definitely a special place. Now, The lake didn't always used to be a lake. Correct, correct. So when this lake first was built... We're talking the really, really early 1900s. Actually, let's back up for one minute. So you you mentioned the railroad, and we're actually sitting in a caboose. Correct. And our past listeners are going to know when we did Saluda and also when we talked about even Hendersonville that the train was a huge part. The railroad was an enormous part of bringing people from the low country, from South Carolina, upstate even, uh, uh, up to this area. Correct. And the railroad really opened up. Access to all of this area, and I don't want to jump ahead, but I know that the railroad was also plays an integral part of this particular area because somebody knew had purchased the railroad at the time, and they Correct. sort of redirected, which is how you, this this whole area really started to get on the map. Right, right.
1: There was a group of investors out of Phila- out of um, Pennsylvania, J. Francis Hayes and E. H. Jennings, and some others. They came up here to, to for the timber. And to uh, for mineral rights and timber rights, and they bought thirty thousand acres. So basically, almost from our side of Cashiers all the way to almost Rosman, North Carolina. Part of their grand plan was to build a railroad from Brevard through Rosman to toxway and then where we're sitting was a Y turnaround. So the train actually came here and turned around and went back. And our train, for the railroad enthusiasts, was called an engine. This two eight zero. And it was a the the engine number is six thirty, and it still runs in Tennessee today. Okay, so it ran from Toxaway to Hendersonville, and just climbed down the mountain and up the mountain. And I actually met a guy the other day, Mister Fisher, that actually would sneak on the train and ride up here, <laughs> and and it was really cool. We're gonna try to interview him at some point in time and get his old stories. Nice, because um, it's really cool to hear it firsthand. But it ran. They pretty much opened the railroad, I believe, in, in 1902 to 1903, where the restaurant, the Grand Ole Station, is now, and that's why we call it that. That was uh, the Railroad Depot, and then there was kind of a lumberyard on the back side of it, and then they had a little ticket booth that you kind of checked in, and that's where when they built the old Toxway Inn, uh, they came up and they built the Fairfield Inn up towards Toxway, on the other side of Toxway, in 19... 19- uh, 1895 and 1896 is when that, the Toxaway company was formed originally. Okay. And then this was kind of their second project and they built basically a 640 acre lake with a 150 room in that had running water. It had elevators. It had, um, uh, radiate, radiant heat and was really kind of a very modern property and building at that time. And Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, the Vanderbilts, the Rockefellers, Alfred Sloan you know, everyone that was a who's who kind of that had their own train car would come up here. And it's pretty, it's pretty phenomenal to think that that many people, you know, got off on a train here in the middle of of nowhere when they could go anywhere in the world. Yeah. And that was pretty
0: neat. Okay, so the train got us here. All that moved in the development, um, which is really consistent with this whole area. Right. But and that was sort of in eighteen ninety five. But talk about the lake itself and when they decided, hey, we're gonna we're gonna dam this thing up and, and we're gonna make it something different than it is.
1: So they started damming up the lake and I believe it was finished in nineteen oh two. Uh the inn was complete in nineteen oh three. Amazingly enough, back then, and when you see the pictures of them building it, they built it in one year which is really spectacular to think that it's a five-story wood frame construction with a wraparound porch and all the technology that was brand new there and then that was built and completed and just really the stories are really kind of amazing you know what they had different species of wood on each floor even in the restaurant now we collect old wooden doors that were from the inn that stayed open until 1916. And July, I mean, excuse me, August thirteenth, nineteen sixteen, the dam broke. There was a huge flood in, in July, and then in and then in August, another two hurricanes came through, and they crossed in the mountains of North Carolina. And you you can read about the Great Flood of North Carolina. The Great Flood of North Carolina was in July, but but the second one came through and weakened the dam, and so the the dam broke in uh, July thir, I mean August thirteenth. 1916, and the lake washed out. People were on the lake. You know, a lot of there's a lot of really cool stories. You go back and you read articles um, about the lake in, in this in this dam breaking, and they're all a little bit different. So we don't know quite exactly the times, but it sounds like to me that it rained the day before quite a bit. And up here, the flooding typically happens the next day because it's got to run out of the mountains. Yeah, that's it's right. It's going to run out of the valley. So. You know it sounds like it was a big storm, and then the sun came out and listening to people talk about it there was um, everybody went out on the boats and it was just like a gorgeous day and it had been raining for days, so everybody was outside and then the word got out that the dam was starting to collapse, and they could see water coming out of the bottom in a strange place and it kept kind of bubbling out and then they said that a big piece kind of broke free. They said about the size of a caboose like this, wow, and then the water really started rushing out, but it took it, they said it took a couple. Um, I mean, like a a number of hours for it to totally drain out. But meanwhile, people were racing on their boats to paddle off the lake. There's a couple little steamboats, but there are stories of people like getting off the boat right when the the dam broke and getting back to shore. And then when the lake was rebuilt, we, a lot of the, my grandfather found a lot of the boats out in the lake that were just left, you know, I think they had like 20 or 25 boats that were just launches and steamboats and, you know, good sized, you know, 20, Probably twenty five
0: foot boats. Wow. You know, so Wow. And uh, so as I understand it, no one died in that. No dam one died except for a, a blind mule. A blind mule. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That that's so funny. Um it, it is and it isn't. I mean, it's kind yeah. of a sad thing, yeah. but yeah, the blind mule. It that seems to come across in every article that I've that I've read, which is interesting. Uh, so, the the lake went dry for, obviously, for, for a long period Correct. of time, right? Yep. So, this was in, you say, 1916 is when this yep. happened?
1: It's, it's kind of weird that it was, a, a you know, they always say 13 is an unlucky number, but it was August 13th. That's how I always remember oh, the date, so it's kind of weird. That is weird. Um, but it emptied out, and a lot of the local people came out and caught fish and picked the fish up out of there. There were little ponds and puddles and different things that were around the lake. So, the local people came and just picked up the fish, and they were going to, you know, they were, you know, the local people up here are just really special and and live off the land and been doing it for years and years and years. So they're not going to let fish die and go to waste. You know, they're going to catch them and eat them or catch them and gather and put them in their ponds. You know, so they came out and there's a lot of cool stories about they didn't have enough baskets to kind of get all the fish out of the holes. Okay,
0: cool. Well, and and there's an interesting sort of a sidebar thought as I was Kind of preparing for this And just kind of Always like to sort of Read a little bit more About the area And there's some Really interesting Information about You you were talking about People living off The land up here It's not easy land To live off It really doesn't Seem to be But the interesting Thing to me When you look back In some of the history Of this area Is that obviously The indigenous people Were a part of this But they only were here For certain periods of time They were only hunting and, And gathering for a Certain period of time And then I think A lot of the Scottish Irish like is very Consistent with this Whole area started to to settle down here. But before that, the trappers would come through. So it was really kind of this area where no one really claimed it as theirs. It was just this rugged area sitting right on the Blue Ridge Escarpment that really wasn't tied to any particular people or way of living. So it was just a place you came in and came out. So the fact that they hung around is, is really pretty amazing to me with that being the backdrop.
1: One of um, my brokers, Michael Sullivan and Sherald, a commercial broker, has uh, has got his master's in history, and he does, um, he's done some little TV shows and talk show things and, and really fascinated with history. So I asked him, I said, you know, we don't have a lot of information beyond 1902 and 1900. You know, what can you do some research for me? So he did one study that said DeSoto came through in, I guess, the 1400s. I don't remember the exact date. When he came, the Spanish Explorer, when he was coming through... The one thing that's unusual is our mountains are very unusual. So if you're anywhere in western North Carolina in a plain or you're up high, you can see Hogback Mountain, which is really Toxaway Mountain now, is what they call it. And it's a very it's shaped like a hog's back. And it's such a big mountain and it's so tall that it stands out from wherever you go. And so he talked about that. And then he also talked about the waterfalls. So he came through to see Rainbow Falls and um Turtleback Falls and Buster Butt Falls and Toxaway Falls and all this stuff and And he described these waterfalls that were very unique because Transylvania Mm. County has more waterfalls than any other county in the country. Yeah, that's right. And so that was really a cool kicking off point that he said. And then the other thing that was really fascinating is he said, "John, people are very confused when they said in early America everybody went west, um, and they everybody thinks it's out west and they hit the mountains out west, but it wasn't. It was these mountains. So Mm. when they were moving from the coast out west to begin with, they were getting away from civilization." And so they, when they got here, from what I'm told from local people and what he was saying is they, when they met up with the Cherokee Indians that were settled here, and we have Chief Toxway's graves right behind us up in the woods here, the Indians settled in a lo- this valley. There was a lot of fresh and clean water, and then they could get up on the high points to look out and to protect themselves, to watch if people were coming. They could see fires being built or whatever as people were coming in. But as the explorers, you know, the American kind of explorers were coming in, they actually blended in well with the Indians, and I don't think at first there was as many problems as you think because there's a lot of stories people said, oh yeah my grand my great 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 grandfather married an Indian or and and they were the Indians were learning you know from from uh kind of the white people they were moving out their ways and how they farmed and what they were doing and then they were teaching them how to hunt and how to survive in the weather up here
0: so back to sort of the the recent past sure nineteen sixteen. Lake goes dry. It stays dry for a period of time, a long period of yeah. time,
1: 50-some-odd years. A couple of families you'll hear over and over, the McNeely family. So Bill McNeely was up here. His family, he said his great, his either great-grandfather or grandfather came up here and was an electrician that helped build, wire the inn. There was a guy named Talvin Miller that was here. And Talvin was also a contractor, construction person, um, working to build the inn. Well, Talvin seemed to hit it off really well with the developers, and so they asked him to be the caretaker. So when the end, when the dam broke, there was no damage up here. Cause we're, we're on a, like on a huge plateau that runs all the way to cashier. So we're, we're at 3000 feet. The lakes about 3,200 feet of elevation. So when the dam broke and everything washed out, Talvin Miller and his family, they were asked to be the caretakers. So the house that I grew up in is called the caretaker's cottage, but it originally was owned by the toxoid company. And it was built, we believe, in 1896. And that's where they had meetings and where they stayed, and it has a big wraparound porch. And so when the Toxway Company used it as a place to stay and to have their meetings and entertain investors and people that might be buying, you could see the whole lake from, from dam to dam. There's another dam up higher now, but back then it's pretty much the whole lake. So that Talvin was given a life estate in my house for his family by E.H. Jennings, who was one of the Uh, he, he was the one that ended up owning the Toxway company when the dam broke. And so Talvin and his family lived in the old inn and they lived in our house and they, they were the caretakers. So he, he walked the 9,000 acres to make sure there was no poachers and people coming in. And then, you know, they lived in a vacant inn and listening to his daughters who grew up in my house. Um, when I was interviewing them at one time, it was just really unusual to hear the stories of them going into this inn. The tables were set, the beds were made. And they just said, hey, they're going to rebuild the dam tomorrow. And, and, you know, the cookie cutters that they made bread out of were still in the kitchen and the plates were still stacked in the, in the you know, all, everything was there. And it just hadn't been touched. They just The power went out with the dam. So they had no power because it was a hydro dam back then. And, and Thomas Edison was part of that. He came up and kind of, you know, when it was being built, you know, he came, he, he came up with Henry Ford, Harvey Firestone, and John Burroughs, the writer. Wow. And they traveled up here together. They they actually camped up here as well, but they would bring the Model T on their trains and then they would take him on excursions and they would like do road testing to see how they would do on the back roads. That's so cool. And um but he supposedly Edison was really interested and had something to do with kind of making it a wired electric, you know, hotel that size back then. And and the hydropower was very interesting wow. to them. Wow. And there's still gears on the dam. You know, kind of on the opposite side of the dam. When the dam broke, where the powerhouse was, there you, there's still huge gears and stuff down there that you see, kind of in the woods.
0: Let's fast forward, really, to then. So okay. so nineteen about the nineteen sixty mark. Right. That's when your grandfather was a huge part of resurrecting, really, this this whole lake concept.
1: Right. He was from Columbia, South Carolina. Donnie Boyd. It was one of his business partners, and they actually started a little development called Mountain Lake Estates in Pickens. It was a horrible failure. It's a failure to this day. We can't give the property away. <laughs> and by accident, and there's always these different stories. One person said that they saw an ad in the Wall Street Journal for 9,000 acres for $50 an acre. And you hear a lot of crazy rumors of how it came about. But essentially, when I, I never talked to my grandfather much about that before he passed away. But I did go interview Donnie Boyd. I think Donnie had more money that my grandfather was not like a very super wealthy person. He was a B25 pilot in World War II and then he moved back to Columbia and started multiple he started a diaper business, he started a construction business and he wow. was just an entrepreneur. So they found the property and they came up here in an old Willie's Jeep. Donnie said he had a broken foot. He said he was getting beat to death. He thought he was going to die cuz <laughs> they were coming up these old roads and they pulled up to the general store, which is um essentially here, okay. this building. There was a lady named Beulah McNeely who was the uh, g- general store owner. She lived upstairs. That's the same McNeely family I mentioned to you earlier that, that they worked in the inn. And, and he said, where's Lake Toxway or whatever? And she says, it's right there. <laughs> and he said, there's no, no lake. No, it's not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and, and everybody would always say, why is it called Lake Toxway? Because you know, from 1916 you know, till the 60s, there was no lake, but it still said Lake Toxway on the signs. So Beulah basically, after they were talking, and she's a very serious woman and kind of quiet, kind of like a lot of the mountain folks up here are real you know they're wonderful people but a lot of them are just really quiet but if you get them talking they're great so supposedly she went in the back and got out a shoebox and brought these pictures out of like this inn mm. might have been in there and, and then she had had the registers where you saw everybody that stayed here at the time where Henry Ford had signed and Thomas Edison and all these people and he's like oh my gosh you know and then so they ended up putting the property under contract for fifty dollars an acre and they got them to own or finance it. So, you know, the it's unbelievable what they bought and what they were able to do. It was a low time in the market. The property had actually been sold for more. And so they I think they put down like ten percent and the collateral was they had to build the the dam had to be built and the lake had to be filled up within three years or they would take the property back. Okay. So the Cosby's I believe were the sellers and the Cosby's had a music school out of Florida. And so my grandfather's house came with it. There was four original houses on the lake. Our house was the oldest. And then there's another house they call the Fog House. It's still here. And then the Greystone Inn was Lucy Moltz's house. And that was built in 1915. And then my grandfather's house was called the Inman House. And if people are from Atlanta, Georgia, they would have heard of the Swan House, which is a historic uh, museum now, I believe. And it's a mansion in Inman, like in the Inman Park area. And so this was their summer home. Cool. And there was a lot of cool you know, families back then that came up here, not only the people that visited, but the Inmans were a very well-known family. The Nunleys, there was Nunley Chocolate. So it really was a who's who of Atlanta. When I go back and do research a lot of times, the Atlanta newspapers will have these um, social columns, and it's like, so-and-so went and had their birthday at Lake Toxaway, and it's, cool. it's a high society thing back then. It was funny. Okay, um, But when my grandfather started rebuilding the lake, all his drawings showed... 1,500-square-foot cabins. I mean, he thought it was all going to be kind of like little tiny summer houses from Greenville and Sumter and Columbia, people escaping the heat. And and there were some unique names. Hugh McCall from Charlotte that started Bank of America or grew Bank of America was my grandfather's first lender. So, you know, he got the property was owner-financed, but then they had to build the the um, the roads and the dam and clear it, and and they were running out of money. So one thing they started doing is raising the lake before it was ready. And chopping the tops off of trees in canoes, and like my uncle Reg, you know, was out there cutting those. And my dad can remember, you know, a lot of this stuff happening. And and then they were selling lumber to make payroll, and they were like literally getting close to running out of money. And then they Hugh McCall was a a Marine from um, South Carolina that moved to Charlotte, and he started. He was within CMB, and then he grew it to Bank of America. He he told me that he he did two loans. They're either going to make his career or break his career. One of them was for Hardy's and Denny's for Jerry Richardson, the former owner of the Panthers, and the other was Reg Heinisch. And because my grandfather was a B twenty five pilot and kind of a World War two hero, in a sense to to him, he just said, "I just believed that he was going to do it," you know. And it was really cool hearing his stories of driving up here from Charlotte in a Volkswagen Bug. And seeing the flooding, the lake actually filled up in like four months. Wow. Way faster than they imagined because we're Different in a rainforest. rainforest. Um, you never know what you're going to get with the <laughs> True. rain. True. It's, be- it's cool up here. It rains a lot, and it is beautifully green. But it also, what happens is the we have, our mountains here go up to about 5,000 feet, and the surrounding area goes up to 6,000. So these storms come in, they hit the mountains, and they drop the water. Yeah. But they blow out. And the next thing you know, it's the most crystal clear blue sky you've ever seen. Yeah. So anyway, Hugh came up and he did the loan and, and they paid him off, and then another kind of North Carolina Titan was Ed Crutchfield. Um, and my grandfather got to be friend, and and Ed started recruiting, you know, knocking on the door, trying to get business, and then he refinanced Hugh's loan. And so it was Hugh and Ed were very competitive. Okay. And um so that was kind of cool hearing those guys out of Charlotte talk about Toxaway because there's a huge Charlotte connection the the group that built the dam was out of Charlotte so a lot of the you know the business folks kind of came from there even though people from Charlotte didn't start buying houses up here until fairly recently and now we're seeing a lot more Charlotte people building up here.
0: One of the things that's interesting to me as you talk is there really is this sense of place here and obviously being a third generation person from here that is very understandable for you for that sense of place mm-hmm. but it's interesting to me too that this has seems to me that it's also creating a different kind of a sense of place because it ties us to our past, right? And you talked about coming up here during COVID and how this seemed like a safe place, and it was a place that you could sort of do life, continue doing life, and not feel like you're isolated from the world. You could just be out in nature and kind of doing your thing. So I love that concept. And as you, the more you talk, the and even before we started recording that sense of place is something that I just sort of have kind of latched onto with this. But that has also been the, the case for a lot of other people that have come up here and that are now calling either Lake Toxaway home or second home or the place that I really want to be if I'm not home.
1: Right. Toxaway is one of those places either gets you or it doesn't. You know, you're either kind of like my wife, when we decided, she's from Columbia, South Carolina. And until um, when my dad passed away and, I kind of agreed to buy my sister out of the Toxway stuff. My wife and kids said we want to. One day we were in Charlotte, and they said, "Hey, we we had a family meeting coming home from school, and we want to live in we want to live in Toxaway and Brevard year round." And I was like, "Really?" You know. And so I was already coming back and forth for some business purposes, and so we kind of reoriented our family, and and they lived up here full time, and then I drive back to Charlotte for work. And what was really cool about it was, you know, when I grew up at the Maltz property where there's now the country club and the Greystone. It just, you know, it was, as a kid, you know, just the su- the cool summer nights and the lightning bugs and the frogs and the sounds and the, you know, in the, in the daytime, you're, it's hot and warm. You can swim and it feels comfortable and you can sit in the sun, but at nighttime you're going to put on a sweatshirt, you know, and there's just, a, there's an atmosphere that you can't describe. When my dad was still alive, I'd agreed to, I'd kind of actually technically bought my sister out of the house and, he was trying kind of joking around, and he said, "Do I still get my room?" And we were kind of joking. I said, "Dad, we're gonna live. We're, there's plenty of room for us all." So, we were all living there together in the summer. He and I were sitting on the porch, and my son and my son Whaley and my daughter uh, Shay and Sloan were just running around trying to catch lightning bugs and putting them in a jar. And bringing them up to the house and showing us that, and we were just laughing. And he's like, "We didn't tell them to do it. They just went and got a jar and did it. And it was identical to what we were doing, cool. you know, just naturally. Cool, you know, living in that summer life. And you can't describe it. It's just a, it's a, it's a feeling when, like we we're talking about being in the rainforest when a storm comes through and we sit on the porch and watch the lightning is spectacular. And 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 the clouds come through and the fog rolls in and then it blows out and you have these little pockets of clouds that are stuck trying to get out of the mountains and it's just like wow look at that it will see a rainbow or because you know half the time it's raining on one part of the lake and not the other so it's just this atmosphere that of mother nature and seasons and stuff that change and so it's just something that people you know like I mentioned um Tom Fazio who, who's one of our neighbors you know he's the I think he's probably the most famous living golf course designer right correct but Tom is uh, was a good friend of my dad's and I'm not a golfer, so I didn't know what a big deal he was, you know. But dad kept saying, You got to go see Tom. You got to go see Tom. And then I went over and interviewed him. And, and I did a little research like you do beforehand. I was like, Oh my God, you know, he did the golf course at the Wynn. He's done, I mean, all this stuff all over the world, very unusually cool places. And he's an amazing designer. I mean, it's, it's really crazy. Even the part of the resorts that he designs the golf course in the resorts. But, and he took me out on his porch and we're doing an interview just like this. And I'm like, Tom, you know, you can go anywhere in the world you know um why talk so and he's like that's it he's i don't have to say anything else that's it right there my view my yeah, place yeah know? and he just he just lit up and he was smiling and he just was such a charming intelligent person that you know for me as a young entrepreneur i'm not young anymore i'm 53 but back then even i just any wait opera, a minute i'm 53 we're still young we're <laughs> still young that. it's weird to say that right <laughs> right so we're gonna live to 100 maybe but you know just to have the opportunity to sit down with people that you know um, I mean, he sits down with presidents and, you know, just to listen to what he's gone through and what he's done in his life, you know, and then he picked talks away. Bernie Marcus is another person who founded home Depot. You know, he has a house up here that he built back, you know, probably in the 2000 or so. And I haven't interviewed him formally yet, but I, he, he said, before you interview me, I want to get to know you and know what it's all about. So, um, I sat down with him and kind of the same question, you know, why talks away, And he's he almost said the exact same thing. He said, look at this place. Then we um, built a house for Cliff Williams, the bass player for AC/DC. On his interview, and he's he's the nicest person you've ever met in your entire world. You know, just they're all these guys don't get to be the the best in the world at what they do without really being great people. Mm. You know, I mean, you can learn so much. It's not like they got there by accident. They got there by hard work, and they they earned where they were. And Cliff was like. He said, we came up here for a summer camp. I think it was Camp Carolina in Brevard and maybe um, also Gwynn Valley and his, I think his his kids were at Camp Alahi. I'm not positive, but so they rented a house around the lake and they're like, we just love this place, you know, and he just, you know, you wouldn't recognize him if you saw him unless you are like a huge ACDC fan, you know, but, and he, so he rented a house different places and then he, then he bought a house and then a couple of years later, then we built him a most amazing house. It's so cool, but. He's just like we're not leaving, you know. I mean, and they, you know, all these guys spend quite a bit of time up here. It's not really a summer home; it's almost just their other home. Cool. Um, Al Wharton, who's an astronaut, lived here. He he has the world record for going the furthest in space. So when they were landing on the moon, he was the guy in the um, capsule going around the moon. So he went around the dark side of the moon, which very I'm not sure how many people have ever done that. But um, and you and I talked before this about Perry, yes, Physical astronomical yes. research. And that was originally, if you Google the Rosman station, was built by NASA in 1959. And I often wondered, you know, Toxway was built, you know, 1960, that was being built in 1960. So um, I think they kind of probably were hiding under the cover of this construction building that place, which was a spy station back then that was following Sputnik. So that's a really amazing place. It's now public. Yeah. And you can go there for educational purposes, but... The stories that come out of there are really cool, so they were had these gigantic satellites, like the movie Contact. They point them up and they were they're so strong that when the Russian satellites were coming over taking picture of the United States, they could tell what they were taking a picture of by the sound of the computers whistling and turning on and like so they one of the guys out there the generals that was running it, put a smiley face because every time the Russian satellite would come over Perry, they would hear the they were taking pictures of us, and they said, "Hey, we're watching you watch us." Wow! And then another general got pissed. And was like, "Hey, take that smiley face <laughs> off. You know, we don't want them to know." And he and then then a four star general said, "Put it back on there. We want them to know that we're watching." Them. The heck you yeah! Know? And so that happened for a long time, and like the first GPS signals were were came from there is because that was one of their tracking stations. And then if there's earthquakes anywhere in the world, they're the seismometers I think you call them, but they um they calibrate them off up here because it's just a huge rock. And then another thing that was unusual that worked for them was we're Uh, it's just a bowl in the Pisgah National Forest. They talk about dark skies. Well, dark skies are also no technology places. So there's no airwaves and radio waves and stuff. So they could really use this whole mountain in the Pisgah National Forest to listen and watch. And then over time, that technology, the they're radio satellites. So they were using radio signals and then they were taking those radio signals and making pictures out of them. So then they decommissioned it and then they offered it to everybody in the government and the Department of Defense took over. And there's very little public information about that other than it was like one of the number one spy listening stations where anything that's radio waves up in the air, they could capture from there. And so wow. that went on until um, a reporter, kind of similar to the Greenbrier, said, you know, why are they spending a billion dollars in in Rosman, North Carolina, or Lake Toxaway? You know, why is there a golden hammer that costs, you know, a thousand dollars or something? So they wrote about it shut it down and then it sat empty Fellow bought it and traded some land and, and he made it like now it's like a space camp for kids and it's pretty neat
0: yeah yeah it's pretty cool i have not had the opportunity to get up there but i know that right to your point they open up to the public and they do a lot of really cool special events uh, late yeah. at night different times of the year that is definitely high on my, my bucket list of things to do so in addition to that, in addition to Parry, there's so many other areas around here. So not just Lake Toxaway. I mean, this is where you can lay your head down at night and play, you know, in the lake and enjoy, but there's so many other things that are that are around here. I mean Brevard's fifteen minutes away, gorgeous state park just right. down the
1: road. We grew up in Brevard in the wintertime because Toxaway shut down when I was a kid. So we went to Brevard Elementary and we lived up there. And Brevard is um it's it's kind of Main Street USA. Yeah. You know, it's a safe little town everyone's, I mean, the people are so nice. It doesn't, you know, it's it's, what used to be an industrial town when we had Acosta and DuPont and there were two huge plants, but they closed down. And then we kind of said in Brevard, what are we going to be when we grow up now? You know, because there was a population gap when the plants closed, people went elsewhere for jobs. And then all of a sudden people started saying, you know, we're in the middle of the national forest and brevards that are thinking about two thousand feet of elevation and so all of a sudden it became the number one retirement place in the country like year after year and then all of a sudden people started coming to vacation and so that's that took place and it's just that norman rockwell downtown yeah feel. Absolutely. It, does, it doesn't get old it doesn't change it's just like it is and the people that are i mean everyone that's in there is running and operating their own stores and they live and work there and breathe there and uh and then the national forest kind of blew up and you know we don't talk about the blue Ridge parkway but it, that's an unbelievable thing
0: absolutely and it's
1: it's brevard's kind of cool it's i i, I sit on a serve on a non-profit group called of brevard which is promoting downtown and i think that might i'm not sure if, if that's where we met but it's i mean it's just a cool cool place and we laugh on this board because everything that Asheville promotes that's outdoorsy is brevard and they were like should we be pissed about this you know we talk about it we're like and somebody said that makes me mad. You know that's false advertisement. And I'm like, stop! They're spending millions of dollars, yeah, yeah, talking about our little town. Yeah, that's right. You know, that's and right. it's a hidden little town. You yeah. know, and so it's just a you know, like when I was a kid, we could, I mean, probably when I was, and I let my son do it now too. But you know, when we were ten to twelve, thirteen years old, our parents were like, it's a safe place. Just you know, walk to town, and we just walk around downtown, and it was safe. You know, it's it's continued to be that way, and then yeah. the national park is really picked up, and then all of a sudden we were discovered by bikers, mountain bikers and road bikers. So we have become kind of the eastern hub of um, like the Yosemite of the East for for outdoors, you know, like outdoor businesses. Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's more camps in Transylvania County than any other county in the country,
0: and there's more waterfalls here. And then cashers, just 15 minutes the other way?
1: Yeah, and cashiers, um, Lonesome Valley is unbelievable there. Canyon Kitchen is right there. <clears throat> Huge rock faces. And that's owned by the Jennings. And and the Jennings, E.H. Jennings, was the developer that bought the Toxway Company. He, he was an investor in the original Toxway Company. But in 1911, he took over the whole Toxway Company. And so that was part of the, that property went from there to here, all the way to Rosman. That's how big 30,000 acres is. It's big. wow. And that's actually, you know E.H. Jennings gave Talvin Miller the caretaker a life estate in our house so they after they tore the end down they moved from from the end into our house and they lived there until the 70s when talvin passed away and then my dad bought it from the jennings dick jennings and, and for local people there's jennings building supplies a big company up here that's that, that around is. yeah okay. So they're in brevard and yeah. cashiers and just kind of a specialty lumber company and then as dick jennings sister has i think a trout farm and a mink farm even up there or something so the original developers had a list of things that they did they were going to hunt and fish and on uh, horseback ride and hike and do all this all these activities that we still do today so it's kind of funny we we listed the activities in 1900 then we listed the activities in 1960 and then and then we're kind of coming to the modern day you know, like the third generation of what my kids want to do and my son loves, he fishes all the time but he loves to go to the waterfalls and and jim barton who comes over he has an Amish buggy that he bought and he's got to be in his 70s and it's got like car wheels on it and car seats and he just rides up and down the road. But when he parks here, everybody stops and said, can we go for a ride? So he and I have been talking about doing like horseback riding trips here. So, you know, just kind of keeping the restaurant a place for people to come and have an experience. You know, I, I want the kids to have that same feeling that we had catching the lightning bugs or, yeah. you know, or, or, or seeing a horse or, or we, we we have a little farm that a fella keeps llamas out there, and he does llama hikes, Mark English. And so he brings the llamas over here when we have an outdoor event, and kids have never seen llamas, you know. So we're trying to, I mean, we don't want to be a carnival. One lady said I'm a carnival or something, but we, we are in a way. But we're really, you know, trying to be, capture the imagination of families. And, you know, it's its when, you, when you're a parent and you see your kids get excited about something, you know, that's a memory. It's funny, when my dad was in real estate when I was a kid, they would go and show the family's real estate and in the my dad would drop the kids off with me and he's like hey take them out in your john boat fishing and stuff and and so i mean i felt like i was showing property since i was like 10 years old cool but i wasn't really trying to sell anything i was just like saying hey you need to come here it's the coolest place in the world yeah you know, kind yeah of thing, so
0: it's just kind of in you so yeah when it is and you love it as much as you do you can't help but want to share it right and the other thing that's really cool to me about what you're doing here at this particular location is you're tying the present to the past. But one of the things that's really kind of lost, I think, uh, today is that connection to the past. And I think when we have that connection, it just opens our eyes up so much more to not only what life was like back then, but um, I think people are looking for simplicity. I think they're looking for the simple life. I think that they are – if one thing that COVID has taught us, I I, I swear it's just – people are caught in the rat race, but they want to get out of that rat race or at least temper it at some point and being able to come to a place like this and, and still have still be able to, you know, kind of handle our responsibilities of life, but, but also be able to take a step back and, and really catch your breath. Right. Right. And that's what this place kind of reminds me of. And so, I know that we have just scratched the surface of all the history that, that you have, especially being somebody that's third generation, but I really want people to know that you are—you've started a project, what, 10, 10, 15 years ago about the capturing the oral history of this area, and it's an ongoing passion project for you. Uh, where can people find out more about that project you have going on? Well,
1: um, it's ongoing yeah <laughs> so yeah. we've been showing we've done um approximately 50 interviews video interviews over the past probably since like maybe nine and uh, um 2013 2014 so with it being i started working on it and then you get distracted my mom ended up having cancer um around excuse me i started like maybe two thousand two thousand eight 2008 or 2009 sorry and then she got sick in 2011 and so my dad kind of said, um, you know, you need to, you ought to start filming again because she was in the hospital quite a bit with, she had mental cell lymphoma, uh, cancer of the blood. So mentally she was great. She just was, she, she was going through a lot of chemo, which, uh, I don't know if I'll ever do chemo, but the, um, but I would go and film during the day. My dad would line up interviews. I would go film people during the day, sometimes with him, sometimes without, and I'm a night owl. So I would come back and, you know, when you have a sick family member, I always tell people you know, they need an advocate in the hospital with them. So I was the nighttime person. So I would come in and, you know, sit in the hospital chair, get my laptop out like you have, and I would start editing. And and then mom and I would watch it together. And, and she just loved it because this was her family's oh, place, not cool. really my dad's place, but her family's place. And so that was really, really cool. And we did that for a long period of time. And we kind of uh, – that was really – we did a ton of interviews. I mean, my dad and I were both really into it. I kind of told my office in Charlotte – I'm going to be gone for a little while, you know? And so the office ran pretty smoothly. We didn't, we didn't go out of business (laughs) and we came up here and did that. And then, and then, so we, we've just haven't really finished it. We've just been kind of putting together. We, we formed the historic Toxaway Foundation, I think six years ago. And that was really uh, an organization because the the Toxaway company sold the lake bed or not sold, but transitioned the lake bed and the dam and the roads to the POA, Toxaway Property Owners Association. So, you know, that was kind of the end of the development aspect of that company. Okay. Um, now they're still they still have the country club and, and have a real estate arm. My um my uncle Reg is the majority owner of that and operates that. My cousin Will, my younger cousin, is the broker in charge and is doing an amazing job. My other cousin, Reg Highness the Third, um, is is a broker there too. My uncle Johnny, who is my mom's youngest brother, is also there and um and then my wife got a real estate license so now she's a broker there when i moved back up to toxway i was like i'm not going to sell real estate up here i took my father's real estate company and merged it back with my grandfather and uncle's company and that was kind of bringing the family back together kind of all being on one team was fun because they were competitors for 30 years 20 years or so so we worked on that and that's been really great to kind of you know family's so important and now having my cousins up here and you know I'm a broker in charge of my own real estate company. So my cousin, Will, and I, we always have great conversations about, you know, the real estate brokerage business. And my wife calls me. She goes, what do you think about this? She goes, I don't like that idea. So then she calls my, my cousin and he she calls me back and said, Will said the same thing, you know? And so we've become very close recently and he's doing an amazing job with that, just having these conversations of business, you know? So they've been involved a lot in helping me set up interviews and things. And so we've just kind of been, you know, eventually... You know, sometimes the story the story's not done. You know, we're we're in our third generation. I have three kids. Will has two kids. My other cousin Reg has a a, a child, and so now we're going into the fourth generation, and we're trying to recreate that atmosphere for them. One of the things with the historic foundation that we created, the primary goal was to, you know, educate about the history in the past. The second part of that was to, you know, try to preserve it the best way we can. And then, then the third arm is we created kind of a, a planning arm that we're you know trying to protect the future and trying to design the future.
0: I know this, this place is just deeply, deeply important to you. And obviously you recognize from the people that are coming in and the people that you've already talked about here that that's important to them too. So in some ways that must feel really, really good because you're talking about looking back, you know, several hundred years really is what I right. imagine, you know, what it amounts to. So thank you for kind of being out front and trying to create this sense of place and trying to connect the past to the future, because in our day and age, I think people crave that more and more and more and more. I, you know, I remember as a young, a young kid, just sitting down watching the old, you know, real to real movies uh, with, with folks. And, and it just, it, it, it drew me in. It gave me again, that sense of place, not to oversay it, but I think it's huge. And it connected me to my past too, right. so I think that was that was absolutely huge. Sure. So, and the really cool thing is, you know, obviously, uh, you, you never know what you're going to get when you schedule these interviews. Um, it's usually always a lot more than you think you're going to get, and and that has definitely been the case here today. So, uh, I really appreciate you just giving us a, a tie back to the past, but also where this place is is really kind of allowing other people to live out living in a place that's pure, living in a place right. that's slow, living in a place that. Isn't just about checking out, but you can come here and relax and decompress. And and as you said, there are still people that are here that are still forging ahead in their careers and their business, but they get to do it in a place that they love and that they feel safe and that they feel like they're a part of part of nature. So, and the
1: internet's changed it. People yeah. can live here and work here, and doctors can review, you know, um, X-rays, and architects can work on their plans and send them back, and you know, it's. Um, that you know, that's a blessing and a curse. It is. I mean, I'd love to have fast access internet, and not have our phones work. But I really appreciate you coming up. And, Absolutely. And, you know, I always think about these things. It's kind of like when I discover little parts through my historical chase of the past. You know, every now and then I run into something. I'm like, holy mackerel, So maybe one day, in 200 years, somebody will find we'll find this recording. and yeah. say Oh, you know what? we can dig up some of these other things. You know, I and hope it just, so. It's clues. We're we're just giving the future clues of the past. You know.
0: It's a great way to say so. It. Well, thanks for having me so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, John. Yeah, well,
1: thanks so much.
0: One of the really difficult things about editing this episode is that we recorded for a long time, and there was so much rich information and stories about Lake Toxaway and the surrounding area that I couldn't really squeeze it all into the episode. And I realized in the final edit that I really hadn't included as much about the Grand Old Station, which is a restaurant and event property that John opened up in 2021. So I wanted to kind of share a little bit of that with you, and we'll also have a link to their website in the show notes, but John restored and opened the grand old station to pay homage to the history and splendor of Lake Toxaway, serving really almost like a museum in many ways. At one point in the property's history, it served the town as a train depot. So there's a historic train caboose on site, really similar to the one that you would have seen years ago. And that's where we recorded this episode. It was so awesome. Oh, and by the way, the food in the Grandel Station is amazing. Again, be sure to check out their link in the show notes. Well, as you can tell, Lake Toxaway stole John's heart as a young boy. And that love is no less strong today. It was so cool watching his son roam about, coming and going as he wanted uh, sliding down the waterfalls. We went to a private waterfall that they had just purchased. It was a pretty special time. And as John mentioned, he serves on the Lake Toxaway Foundation and he's extremely committed to the foundation's goals of educating about the history in the past, as well as preserving and protecting the area for future generations to enjoy. We'll have a link to their website in our show notes as well. Be sure to check that out. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and feel free to shoot me an email at mike at explorationlocal.com if you ever have an idea for a future episode. Well, until we meet again, I encourage you to wander far, but explore local.